In episode 1 of A History of the Flemish Far Right, our story began with the road to and subsequent birth of a nation. We discussed Belgium's revolution in 1830, as well as its growing pains in the years that followed. It quickly became clear that the Dutch-speaking people of Belgium had been relegated to a sort of second-class citizenship, sometimes made official through, for example, the fact that the Flemish could not speak their own language in court until decades later. We saw the beginnings and advances of the Flemish movement throughout the 1800s, gaining better representation and rights in their own country, and the intellectual movement that reigned beside it for years. Our story continued through to the First World War, where the Germans' Flamenpolitik gave rise to divisions, the interwar period with the new Flemish nationalist political parties, and we ended the first part of our journey through history after World War II. Flemish collaboration with the Nazis had hurt the cause for Flemish independence, but most were not ready to forgive the inhumane acts of such groups as the VNV or Verdinasso, which had hoisted themselves as being representatives of the movement at large. We pick up the story of the Flemish far right on the eve of one of the darkest periods in human history, as the Nazis' systematic killing and torturing became clearer by the day. The far right in Flanders has been pushed underground alongside the Flemish movement, as both tend to their wounds, fearing retribution, while Belgium reels from five years of war and destruction. In this episode, we'll pick up the story of the Flemish movement and the Flemish far right post-World War II, and see how these forces develop throughout the decades, eventually giving birth to the Vlaams Bloc, one of the major actors in Belgium's fascist political play. Needless to say, but always a little necessary, the disclaimers from episode 1 are still very much relevant to episode 2. After the liberation, there were two cogent arguments in favour of writing finished to the story of Flemish nationalism. In the first place, there was a good reason for thinking that a movement which had openly identified itself with the oppressors, not only of Belgium but of every man and woman in Europe, should be permanently disqualified. Secondly, the war, with the sharp break with the past that it implied, had in effect brought about the liquidation of the last unjustifiable but traditional privileges which still assured to the French language a certain preeminence in Belgium. This passage, published by the Royal Institute of International Affairs in 1949, expresses two very popular views of the contemporary state and future outlook of the Flemish movement. Thinkers and observers thought the Flemish movement to be done for, not only due to its treacherous actions during the war, but also because it was believed that the Flemish had achieved some form of equality with the French-speaking Walloons, robbing the Flemish movement of its raison d'être. Though the immediate post-war situation seemed to bear out this hypothesis, with a few years of what people called the catacomb days, it didn't take long for it to ultimately be proven wrong. In his book The Ideology of the Extreme Right, political scientist Cass Mude writes, The collaborators were exposed to all sorts of repressive measures. The same was true for the many Walloon collaborators, and although these so-called catacomb days only lasted five years, calls for their amnesty or rehabilitation became major issues for the post-war Flemish movement. In 1954, some 1,500 collaborators were still in prison, and roughly 150,000 Belgians, the so-called Inciviken, those unworthy of citizenship, did not enjoy civil rights. As Muda explains, though they had been driven out of the mainstream for a few years, the voices of Flemish nationalism, as well as the far right, were to enjoy popularity once more. There are two organizations that now need introducing. These two groups are not only quite important for the 1950s, but also for various other chapters of our story. The first is the Vlaams Concentratie, or Flemish Concentration, a political party set up by a number of far-right figures, the most important of which are Hector de Bruyne and Karel Dillen. 
These are important names to remember as they're crucial to understanding how Nazi and fascist elements have survived through the decades. So we ask that you do your best in committing these to memory, but don't worry, mentions of these characters will often be accompanied by recontextualizations. Aside from the Flemish concentration, a direct action group was also born, the VMO, the Flemish Militant Order. Founded by Bob Maas, one of the early members of the Flemish concentration, this order of militants was the much more sinister sibling in the Flemish nationalist duo. To understand why, we need to dive into the history of Bob Maas. Born in 1924, Maas had just about turned 16 when the Nazis invaded his country. While studying classical humanities in Brussels, Bob seemed to take a quick liking to his invaders. In 1943, at 19 years old, he joined the VNV and the Nazi Youth of Flanders, two rather openly Nazi organizations. You might remember from our previous episode that the VNV worked directly with the Nazi Reich and made no attempt to hide it. Bob rose through the ranks to become regional secretary of the Nazi youth and stayed on as a member of the VNV until its destruction. Maas turned himself in near the end of the war and spent one year in prison before being let out. A few years later, he creates the VMO, a radical group supposedly set up to defend far-right protests, but as we'll see later on in the episode, they quickly showed their true nature as a gang of violent fascists. On the other hand, the Flemish concentration was thought up as a democratic challenge from the Flemish nationalist side. The brainchild of Hector de Bruyne, it nonetheless garnered many supporters from the ranks of Holocaust deniers and fascist collaborators, though it failed to garner a strong voter base due in part to its rather outrageous demands for amnesty in regards to Nazi collaborators, the Flemish concentration proved it was possible for Flemish nationalism to peek its head out of the shadows and see the light of day. We aren't going to focus too much on the Flemish concentration, but something, or rather someone, we want you to pay close attention to is a certain man named Carol Dillon. Dillon's going to be one of the main actors for our play in this chapter and the next, so make sure that you've got that name memorized. Carol Dillon. A self-described passive collaborator who once said he wears the name fascist and racist with pride, Dylan was the son of a dock worker and a home carer from Antwerp. Born in 1925, he worked as a clerk for a taxi company after his secondary studies, and was just 20 years old when World War II came to an end. After the liberation of Belgium, Dylan joined nationalist youth groups and eventually made his way to the Flemish Concentration Party. In 1951, Dylan puts his name on the map by translating Nuremberg, or The Promised Land, a book by the fascist writer Maurice Bardèche, which states that the concentration camps were faked by Hollywood, effectively becoming one of the first written works denying the existence of the Holocaust, a truly abominable book. During the early 50s, Dylan joined the newly created magazine with close ties to the Flemish concentration party, Upstanding. He was part of their editorial team from 51 to 53, and soon after founded the JNG, or the Young Dutch Community. This nationalist youth group also had a magazine, Dietzland Europa, for which Dylan became editor-in-chief. During his stints at both Dietzland Europa and Opstanding, Carol Dylan wrote a lot of terrible far-right articles. From supporting the South African apartheid to platforming Nazi ideas, it's safe to say that Dylan, as a journalist and writer, did his part in making the world a worse place to live in. So back to the bigger picture. Let's leave Carol Dillon for now and focus on the Flemish movement and the far right as a whole. As you'll remember, the Flemish concentration was really the only party leading the charge for Flemish nationalism. But as we hinted at before, they didn't fare so well. Lasting a mere five years, from 1949 to 1954, 
historians consider the party to have been a failed project. But even among the Flemish concentration's failure to garner votes and build a voter base, there was a gold nugget of success for the far right as well as for the Flemish nationalists. They managed to prove that Belgium was ready to allow, at the very least, a Flemish nationalist party. And so, with the destruction of the Flemish concentration came a new powerful force in the Belgian political field. From the ashes of a failed party appeared a stronger, broader alliance of Flemish nationalists from an array of political origins. This political giant, which much of this episode will be about, broke entirely new ground. The year is 1954, and in comes the Volksunie. Publicly created to defend Flemish interests in Belgium through a democratic manner, the Volksunie, or VU, is an immensely interesting part of both Flemish nationalist and Flemish far-right history. The VU began effectively as a single-issue party, yet evolved into much, much more. Initially founded by a group of particular politically-minded men, it's extremely important to go over who these founders were and what they stood for if we're to understand how current far-right parties evolved out of it. The Volksunie leadership looked in part like a bizarre mix of lost souls. There was Ludo Sels, a horticulturist and defender of farmer interests, Walter Couvreur, a professor of classical philology, and Franz Barth, one of the most important lawyers in the country's history. These people were indeed founders of the VU, but they were also the more inoffensive of the bunch. The rest of the VU's founding ranks consisted of Wim Jorissen Sr., a fascist with enthusiasm who wrote about the positive balance of apartheid in South Africa, Rudy van der Paal, a kingpin of Flemish dark money and international fraudster, and even Franz van der Helst, a lawyer and intimate friend of Hendrik Elias, who you might remember from the last episode, was the Belgian leader of the Flemish Nazi party, the VNV. So we have a colorful cast of random individuals and political bastards who somehow together managed to agree on forming a political party with the main aim of Flemish nationalism. Around this broad push for nationalism, the VU also demanded amnesty for those who collaborated with the Nazis during World War II, which didn't help their image of not just a bunch of fascists. Historian Frank Ilsbrou writes in 1996 about the VU's first election in 1954. The Young Party's first electoral test had a very limited result. With 1.98% for the House and 1.49% for the Senate, the VU won even fewer votes. The VU won even fewer votes. The VU won even fewer votes than the Flemish concentration in 1949 or the CVV in 1954. Franz van der Elst became the only parliamentarian of the party. Indeed, the VU began with a whimper. Doing worse than the Flemish concentration was an embarrassment for the party, but it didn't lose faith. After a short-lived leadership battle, Hermann Wachmans, who had previously been at the head of the concentration, left the party and gave way to Franz van der Elst, friend and supporter of the notorious Belgian Nazi chief Hendrik Elias. Four years later, in 1958, the Volksunie would see their parliament vote share stagnate around 2%, barely enough for Franz van der Helst, their leader, to represent the VU in parliament. But it's really from the 1961 elections and onwards that the VU made an entry in the political scene. With 3.5% of the vote in 1961, the Volksunie was able to send five of their representatives to parliament and two to the Senate, giving Flemish nationalism the short burst of steam it sought since 1949. Over the following years, internal conflicts began to appear as public popularity brought with it questions outside of Flemish independence or amnesty demands. 
A first major rift happened in 1965, with Daniel de Koninck and his more liberal supporters leaving the VU to create their own party, which would eventually fail and wither away into history. This moved the Volksunie slightly further to the right, as it was now missing part of its left-wing balance, but everything changed when three years later, in 1968, the VU won nearly 20 seats in parliament, meaning they had real negotiation power. For the first time since World War II, a Flemish nationalist party was being taken seriously by other political parties. So seriously, in fact, that they were invited to participate in government-building talks after the 1968 elections. While the VU itself was growing, a lot was happening outside or near it. For example, the language border of Belgium was made official in 1962, giving the Flemish nationalists a more concrete and public image of the land they were meaning to fight for. In 1967, the Belgian constitution was officially translated in Dutch, meaning that half the country could finally read their own constitution without relying on unofficial versions. As we've previously mentioned, Flemish nationalists had fought side by side with the far right for decades, taking advantage of their numbers in what can only be described as a dance of the devil. As you may recall, before the politically mixed Volks Uni appeared, there were a few actors worthy of mention in our story, one of which was Bob Maas and his fascist militant group, the VMO. The VMO was a sinister bunch. Their leader, Bob Maas, had been a Nazi collaborator, a member of the Nazi VNV party, and had both gone to prison for a year and lost his political rights for 20 years because of it. Whether or not this was enough of a punishment isn't really the question here that we'll be focusing on. Rather, what's interesting in our case is how much of an influence did a Nazi like Bob Maas and his VMO hooligan group have on the Volksuni party, which, as it gained support through the 60s, presented itself as a rather moderate option. Well, you might say, they had a few bad apples as leaders, an apartheid supporter, a Nazi befriending lawyer, etc., but surely no one as outrageously disgusting as Bob Maas. Well, not only was Bob Maas an elected senator for the VU from 1971 to 1985, but he was also a board member, provincial chairman, and an intimate supporter of the Volksunie from the start in 1954. The VU, with its talks of being a democratic and balanced option for Flemish nationalists, had the Nazi in its ranks from the start. Bob Maas had hopped around from the Nazi VNV party to the Flemish concentration to the Volksunie. You may remember there was another big character in our story who during the 40s and 50s managed to build a career, Carol Dillon. While the VU grew, Dylan had also managed to do well for himself. He had founded Dietzland Europa, a nationalist magazine for which he held the position of editor-in-chief, and was spending his free days leading Weredi, a nationalist community group, from 1962 on. Through his work at Weredi, Carol Dylan found himself working for and in the VU. In fact, he ended up joining his party council in the 60s, positioning himself as one of the most prominent members of the Volksunie. So throughout these decades, up to 1970, we have the VU as a political bastion of Flemish nationalism, anchored in a strong Catholic political tradition with both more liberal and conservative wings, but also marred by its links to devious figures and groups. Groups like Bob Maas's VMO, which had become infamous for its murder of an activist from an enemy party in 1970, or its physical assault of resistance heroes from the Second World War, and as you can imagine, a party that wishes for itself political stability and a broader voter base can't stay allied with groups that thrive on instability, on extremist politics, and especially not with individuals that remind the public of their Nazi enemies of just 15 years prior. Belgium enters the 70s with a bang. In 1970, the country undertakes its first state reform and constitutional revision. 
as the Belgian government itself explains it. This reform is a response to the pursuit of cultural autonomy by Flemish people. In 1970, the foundations were laid for setting up three regions. They each have their own territory and are mainly expected to be active in the economic field. The regions are a response to the desire expressed by French speakers, the Walloons and French-speaking people of Brussels, for economic autonomy. This reform marked a major step towards the Belgium of today. The Flemish and Walloons were officially responsible for a major part of the inner workings of their region. Through the setting up of the Dutch cultural community, the Flemish now controlled broadcasting and the use of language in their own region. And through the creation of regions, each took a step towards economic autonomy. Indeed, as Prime Minister Eskens said after the negotiations ended, it was the end of Dad's Belgium. The country was transforming. The Volksuni participated in the constitutional revision of 1970, but left after disagreements emerged between them and other major parties. Even though this major state reform went ahead without their input, the VU was bolstered by what was clearly a sign that they were being recognized as one of the major players. They had earned a seat at the big boys' table. In 1971, that legitimization and platforming gave them their biggest electoral win ever. 11% of the national vote went to the VU, including nearly 20% of the Flemish vote. This meant that they controlled 21 seats in Parliament, 19 in the Senate, and 70 in provincial councils. The VU still remained third in Flanders behind two other mainstream parties, but they had firmly established themselves as an option in the political game. With stronger electoral gains came increased pressure towards pragmatism. Carol Dillon couldn't stand for a Volksuni that wasn't inherently hardcore conservative. After seeing the VU lean to the center in its post-election glow, he decided to resign from it and break off ties to the party. For the next few years, Carol Dillon would be without party, occasionally supporting the VU, but keeping to himself in most cases. Dillon wasn't the only far-right figure having a tough time. Bob Maas, the head of the fascist VMO, also had to make some difficult choices. You see, his VMO boys had accidentally killed an activist, putting up posters for an opposing party. And more than that, the VMO had actually attracted international attention by going to Germany and Austria and gathering the corpses of famous collaborators. Bob Maas and his group had brought back to Flanders the remains of people like Staff de Clerc, the Nazi leader of the VNV, who was responsible for many of the atrocities in Belgium. Maas and his colleagues gave the collaborators a proper burial with honors and in their homeland, something that many found to be a disgusting act of support for their Nazi ideology. And though the Belgian judicial system had kept its eyes closed on most of the VMO's criminal behavior for 20 years, including owning illegal firearms, threats, physical assaults, etc., etc., their behavior was now out of line. As individuals were one by one being prosecuted, Bob Maas sees no other option than to dissolve his VMO gang, fearing retribution against the organization as a whole. And though that might have marked the end of the VMO for some, for others it simply signaled the beginning of a new era. Bert Eriksson was not happy. His beloved VMO organization was apologetically bowing to Belgian law and giving up its gang-like behavior to fade away in silence. Eriksson, an openly white supremacist neo-Nazi, couldn't accept this and decided to take hold of the reins before the organization was six feet under. He kept the name VMO and set out his vision for a more organized, more violent and totally unapologetic organization. The VMO wasn't going to be a disgruntled gang anymore. Ericsson would transform it into a paramilitary militia and they couldn't care less about public opinion. Back to the more mainstream actors of our story, you might remember the name Franz van der Helst. 
Van der Helst was the founding president of the VU, but also a longtime friend and lawyer for Hendrik Elias, who led the Nazi VNV party during World War II. Elias was a Nazi. There was no doubt about that. He regularly sported a black long coat and hat adorned with Waffen-SS insignias, and spoke often with Nazi leaders in Germany to coordinate actions in Belgium. His death sentence was commuted to life in prison, but Elias only served eight years due to health issues. Working as a legal counsel for a Nazi isn't a great addition to Franz van der Rels' CV, but the president of the Volksunie didn't really care. Not many in the public knew, though, that more than simply being Elias's lawyer, Franz van der Rels was his friend. In letters made public years later, it's quite clear that Elias had a lasting impact on van der Rels' political beliefs. In fact, researchers who've studied these letters say they're clear signs that van der Helst's personal beliefs were heavily influenced by the imprisoned Nazi, and still van der Helst had led the Volksunie for 15 years. In 1973, van der Helst's health becomes a serious issue. His age is starting to show, and the party can't allow itself to weaken just when it's gaining momentum as a viable political option. Van der Helst himself knows this and calls a council meeting to elect a new inner circle of 14 VU leaders called the Partei Bestur, or the Party Bureau. This party bureau would see 10 of its members elected by the Partei Rad, or the party council, and the other four by general members. Alongside this dual structure of council and bureau is born the position of bureau president. Franz van der Helst, who would stay on as council president, is responsible for external control and direction of the party, while a bureau president would coordinate the internal operations of the party. This was a major step for the VU, their first major structural change since the party's creation in 1954. An internal election takes place, and after three rounds of ties, Hugo Schiltz is elected bureau president, as the party rules state that if three ties happen in a row, the oldest candidate wins by default. With the more centrist Hugo Schiltz as leader alongside van der Helst, the party was signaling it was trying to leave behind its old guard of radical and extremists. Shortly after, the Volksunie organizes a party congress to set a new course. Its general aim, engraved in stone, becomes the federalization of Belgium for the purpose of Flemish autonomy in a Belgian state. As you can imagine, the more hardcore independence fans within the VU didn't appreciate this move, and as such, a rift appeared, clear-cut between independence from Flanders and federalization, aka autonomy while staying in Belgium. While the VU was busy fracturing itself at the peak of its success, the many smaller, politically-minded organizations outside of it had other plans. During this whole episode, we've been mentioning small groups, often community action groups or magazines like Weredi and the VMO, some much more sinister than others. Well, they had always been working together to some extent, at the very least side by side, but in 1973, they decided to take this to a new level. 27 groups, Weredi, the VMO, TAC, and the ANZ among them, organized a Landach, a word which can be read as a simple meetup, but also as a reference to the Dutch East India Company's Landach in Taiwan during the 17th century. The Dutch would make a show of their strength to their native slaves with a political exhibition meant to oppose paternalism and their supposed superiority on native minds. It could just be that the organizations liked that specific word and couldn't think of any other, or it could be that they just really liked that specific word with a specific history attached to it. The 27 groups managed to come together to create the Vlaams National Rad, the VNR, an umbrella organization with Hermann Wachmans at the helm, the initial VU president who had been ousted in a leadership contest by van der Helst. Hermann Wachmans takes figurative control of these 27 groups, with amnesty for collaborators 
Flemish independence and expulsion of immigrants as some of his key goals. With the silent objective of pushing the VU towards the extremes, the VNR was the alliance of far-right groups absolutely no one needed. As the years went on, the Volksunie's internal threats started weighing on their popularity. Franz van der Elst and Hugo Schiltz often fought, with van der Elst exasperated the younger, more moderate Hugo Schiltz for acting like the one and only leader of the VU. In 1974, the party loses out in the elections and falls down to fourth biggest party in Flanders, furthering the rifts inside the party. Internal issues forced the VU leadership to somewhat implode in 1975, with a return to the old system of a singular leader of the party. Franz van der Elst, the Nazi's lawyer, and Wim Jorissen, the apartheid enthusiast, are barred from running by the party council, signaling in more ways than one that the old guard is not welcome anymore. Hugo Siltz runs for the presidency and wins by a landslide. The old VU is no more. At once, the more extreme wings of the party are relegated to the back benches pushed to the shadows by their more moderate colleagues. The idea of these different groups working together for an autonomous or independent Flanders was crumbling at the foundations. Now, pay attention because this chapter of our story covers only four more years, those that followed Hugo Schild's selection, and everything that was to set up the modern far-right in Flanders happened during that time. In 1977, one of the most important events in Belgian political history took place, the Egmont Pact. It had only been seven years since Belgium had its regional lines drawn up, with clear powers given to the Dutch and the French side, and once more, parties were asking for more. The Egmont Pact, a set of institutional reforms led by potential Prime Minister Leo Tindermans, was meant to lay to rest the conflicts between language communities in Belgium. In the minds of some, it only served to platform and further plans for the division of Belgium. We won't bore you with the details of the pact, but what you have to understand is that the Egmont Pact was a terribly divisive issue. Historian Maureen Covell writes, The Egmont Pact was negotiated in 1977 as part of the government formation process. The negotiating team included the potential prime minister and the presidents of the potential coalition parties. It took place over a three-week period under conditions of secrecy and an intense pace that included several all-night sessions. The isolation and secrecy with which the negotiations worked created what they describe as a team spirit. Each side came to believe that the main obstacle to an agreement wasn't the adversary with whom they were negotiating, but their own followers who would have to be made to accept the agreements. In fact, the negative reaction of their followers were underestimated by all negotiators. The Egmont Pact was a grenade thrown into a room full of fractures. Its explosion served to open the cracks and finalize splits which were likely always going to happen. To sum it up, in the words of Cass Mude, On May 4th, 1977, the leaders of VU signed the so-called Egmont Pact, which envisioned the federalization of Belgium. The Egmont Pact provoked heated debates, and not only in the VU. The whole Flemish movement was divided over it, and found itself caught up in the worst crisis it had known in the post-war period. Federalization, so both the pro-democratic and anti-democratic separatists believed, did not go far enough. While the Egmont Pact could have an entire episode dedicated to it, all you really need to know is that the more liberal elements of the VU and the Flemish movement believed it to be a good step towards reaching their goal of autonomy within Belgium. At the same time, the more conservative separatist elements of the VU and the Flemish movement saw it as a wasted opportunity and that it gave too much away to the Belgian state, especially Brussels, which, instead of becoming part of Flanders, was to be a region of its own. During this crisis, the VNR took a hard stance against the pact. The umbrella group of 27 far-right organizations did the one thing it was created for, pushed the VU from the outside towards its own goals. 
well, there's no easy way to say this, but the VNR failed at doing the one thing it was supposed to do. It had, in fact, one job. This was the last straw that broke the fascist camel's back. Over the past 20 years, the Flemish far-right had seen the VU being taken over by moderates and pluralists, saw its leaders pushed out one by one, and its own organization powerless in the face of changes. So, the Flemish far-right did the one thing it could do. It created a new party. Well, two actually. In the year that followed, while the moderate Hugo Schiltz is re-elected leader of the VU, two self-described leaders of the Flemish movement decide it is high time for them to lead things. Lo de Klaas, a VU senator, leaves the Volksunie and creates the Vlaams Volkspartij, the VVP. At the same time, Carol Dillon, who you might remember from earlier, creates the VNP, the Vlaams Nationale Partij. The VVP of Lo de Klaas failed miserably. All it took was a huge defeat at the European elections of 1979, and its members saw no future for it. And when that happened, Carol Dillon and his VNP were there to welcome them with open arms. The year is 1979, and Carol Dillon, a self-described passive collaborator, translator of Holocaust denial books, founding member of apartheid support group Protea, and fascist writer, changes Flemish far-right history by fusing the VNP and the VVP, breakaway parties, into a single one, the Vlaams Bloc. Forget the Volksunie, the Vlaams Bloc is it. This is where our story is heading. That's where it's been heading this whole time. The extreme right within the Flemish movement finally broke away from the VU. Their alliances with the moderates foregone. Carol Dillon is elected chairman for life of the Vlaams Bloc as the VB prepares for the upcoming elections. Supported by an array of far-right groups such as Wehadi and VMO, the VB, Vlaams Bloc, gains new supporters from all over. Separatists who felt they couldn't have their way with the Volksunie decided their time was better spent fighting for the Vlaams Bloc. The VB, which at first hid its fascist fangs, welcomed them all. Carol Dillon was a self-described fascist and racist. There's no two ways around it. He fraternized with Holocaust deniers, Nazi VNV supporters, helped create organizations with far-right beliefs and tendencies, and wrote countless articles which would make any decent person sick to their stomach. He founded radical youth groups, supported the VMO, and even created a group to support South African apartheid. Carol Dillon, in our purely neutral and objective opinion, was a bastard. But there's no way someone like him could have amounted to much politically, you tell us. His ideas died long ago, well, you'll just have to tune into episode 3 to find out. This is where the second episode of our story ends. In 1979, with Carol Dillon at the head of the newly created Vlaams Bloc party, the VU ready to fade away, a tree in a forest of moderate parties, and the separatist Flemish movement moving further to the right, betrayed by pluralist members seeking federalization. In the next chapter, we'll cover the years 1979 to 2004, and see just what happens to Carol Dillon's Vlaams Bloc and the Flemish far right. Thank you for listening to the second episode of A History of the Flemish Far-Right. This podcast audio essay series is written by Tim Marin and Skander Mana and produced and published by the Rising with the Tide team. It means a lot to us that you took the time to listen to this whole episode. The good news is, part 3 and 4, covering the rise of the Vlaams Bloc and the Vlaams Belang, are in the works and will be released in the weeks or months to come. For more information and more content from Rising with the Tide, please head to risingwiththetide.org to find everything from our podcast interviews, infographics and audio essays like these to our Patreon, socials and roadmap for upcoming projects.